As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please um, to pray with me. Father, again on a Sunday, um, it's good to gather. And so thank you for making that possible for us in a variety of ways. First, uh, we realize that uh, still in our country, we're free to gather and we're grateful that we're free to gather to worship many of our brothers and sisters throughout history and um, even presently and perhaps in the days of come for us, how that freedom uh, may not exist. And so we are very grateful, give you thanks for the uh, freedom really to come and to worship. It's our heart's desire that you would preserve that for us and grant it to others throughout the world. And secondly, just on a day that's cold, that you've enabled us to get here safely, and for that we're grateful as well. And uh, now pray that you would um, reveal yourself to us through your word. We've, we've sung your praises. Uh, we've sung even to one another to teach one another and to edify each other, to build each other up in the faith. And we've made our confessions and our prayers. And now we come, Lord, uh, and ask that you would uh, speak to us in this word and and. In, in only the way that the Holy Spirit can take words that are familiar and even we've heard before and work in us and thrill our souls, we pray that he would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, uh, please, to Titus in chapter 2 and to read, as I've read for the last few Sundays, this passage beginning in verse 11. Titus in chapter 2, please. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, again, I want to take up this passage. I don't know if you have seen this. I trust you have as you as I've been reading this passage um, each Sunday, that there seems to be a a likeness between chapter two, verse 11 through 14 and chapter three, verses uh, four through eight. I mean, they seem to mirror one another. Uh, First of all, we have, as we've been uh, applying 
uh, in the last number of weeks, the, both advents of Jesus, his first and second advent in chapter 2 and verse 11. We see the first advent for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then we also see his second advent, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, and in chapter 3, we see uh, the first advent in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and we also see at least an allusion, even probably more than that, in um, uh, verse 7, <clears throat> that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so we see the blessed hope there in that uh, passage as well. Uh, we see um, that this grace saves in both of those passages uh, the grace of god verse 11 has appeared bringing salvation for all people and then later in that section speaking of jesus who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and so forth so we see the salvation that that comes and we see it in chapter uh, three as well laid out even more uh, extensively in these verses four through seven i won't read them all because we'll come to them in a minute but this sense verse five he saved us and also we see that all of this is by his grace uh, verse 11 in chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we see it's by his grace. And in chapter 3, we see it's also God's grace. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So it's by his grace. We see in, 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 in verse 5 that he saved us, uh, not according to our own works, but by his own mercy. And then we see in verse 7 that we are justified, being justified by his grace. So all of that is is by the grace of God. We see that there in, in both passages. We see that the, the, the test of all that or the end result of all that we could say uh, is that we're to do that which is good. We're to live a life that is obedient to God and that it produces good works. Notice uh, in again, chapter two. Um, the grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Verse 14, that uh, God is purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous or enthusiastic uh, for good works. Same in chapter 3. Verse 8, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So again, uh, my point is simply being what we have is, is two sides of one coin here where Paul states it for them and then states it perhaps in a more general way in this uh, chapter 3. And we see it's God's grace that's at work. We don't deserve it. But it's God's kindness to us, his love expressed to us, to sinners who deserve really judgment. And that what we get is forgiveness and justification. And, and it's his grace, too, that he just doesn't leave us in our sin and the misery of our sin. But he saves us in such a way that even now his spirit works in us to enable us to put that sin away and to walk with him. To 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 say no or to renounce, to deny ungodliness in our life. He gives us the, the insight, the wisdom, the strength to say, no, that's wrong. That will lead to death. And, and the insight and the wisdom say, no, 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 this is right and this is good and that leads to life. I mean, he, he really works that in us by his spirit. And that's his grace at work in us. And he works his grace in us by various means as we've discussed 
He works his grace in us by his, by his word, right? We go to, to his word, which is able then to bring grace to us. Uh, this word is God breathed. When we read the Bible, that's God speaking to us. Again, I used to teach my kids, uh, the, just say, you know, sometimes I pick up the Bible and do this, you know. And what are you doing? Well, I'm listening. That's silly, Dad. I know, but but remember this. When you read it, it's God speaking, not you and me. And so we pay attention to it. And because it's God speaking, his word has power. He spoke and there was light. And so his word is powerful. It enables. It's enabling grace. It doesn't just give us information. That's the amazing thing about the word of God. It doesn't just give us information. But it's powerful to work in us. And that's by his grace. We don't deserve it. This wisdom and this power that he gives to us. And, and we receive this enabling grace by prayer. How does the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews in, and uh, Going the wrong way in Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 14, he, he speaks to us and he says that um, since we then have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Even God speaks in double negatives from time to time. He says he, he can't, God can't not be merciful to us in Jesus. It's the very nature of Jesus. The incarnation uh, was such that Jesus experienced life as us. Thus, he knows our weaknesses. So he can sympathize with us in the mystery of the incarnation. When we pray about our weaknesses, when we pray about temptation, we pray about the difficulties of life. Jesus is sympathetic. He realizes, yes, I get that. I understand that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, good news, yet without sin, so that we do pray he knows how to not sin in that situation. And he can enable us to not sin in that situation. So then let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. For believers, we can understand that God is ruling and reigning and his throne is a throne of grace. He distributes grace from it. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So he already showed up ahead of us to defend us, if you will, so that grace would come to us. It's a throne of grace that with confidence, therefore, since it's grace, we may draw near, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we need, we're to pray. And help comes. So praying is a means by which God's enabling grace comes to us. Uh, Not only that, this enabling grace uh, helps us, if you will, uh, by God's discipline. In chapter 12 of of Hebrews, we we read of of that discipline that comes. He loves us. He's a loving, perfect father. And he disciplines us for our good. And even though, verse 11, that may seem painful rather than pleasant, the end result is that it yields peaceful fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by you. See, so, so God's 
Enabling grace comes by way of, of his discipline. Those disciplines can come in a variety of fashions. Um, some translations just simply say hardships, difficulties that come, providential difficulties that come in our lives. We're to take as God's discipline to train us. So we're to submit to God's training in the midst of them. God, what do you want me to learn? How, how is it that I'm to behave in the midst of this difficult, trying situation? What's your words say about it? Give me grace. How am I to pray about this? Give me help. So in the midst of all of that, God is disciplining us, training us. And we can trust him because it's by his grace. It's by his grace. He's a gracious teacher. He knows what's best for us because he loves us. And he'll use the best means to help us and to discipline us because he loves us so we can trust him in the midst of that. He, this, this help comes to us by way of fellowship. Again, the author of Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Why? Because we need to encourage one another daily. We, we get help from each other. I, I don't know if you realize this about yourself. You, I trust you realize it about others. But even in our gatherings on Sundays, there's great encouragement just to see one another. Just to realize, oh, he, she, still walking with Jesus, still here to worship. Just in the sense of gathering together. One of the delightful and helpful moments of, of communion and coming forward for it is it gives us an opportunity to see each other. Not to see what each other is wearing or any of that sort of how they, how they look good today or any of that. That's not the point of it. But to see them coming. And in the coming, that should thrill your soul. Look at that person still walking with Jesus in the midst of all the difficulties of life. And they get to see you. You're still walking with Jesus even in the midst of the difficulties of life. That, trust me, if you don't have that, it will affect you in your walk with the Lord negatively. You may not be able to pinpoint all the different moments of encouragement, but in the midst of it, it's building you up. The encouragement of one another. And not to even mention the words that we speak to each other in the midst of life, to bring the word of God to each other in difficulties. And just in, in regular conversation, God uses it, you see, to build us up. We might not even be noticing it, but he uses it. To build us up. The experiences of others. We have a great cloud of witnesses, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Some have, have gone before us and, 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 and we look at their lives and, we, and that encourages us and helps us and brings grace to us in, in these times of need. Uh, this grace comes in the midst of our own struggle with temptation and, and life itself as we're even struggling to us. Paul writes in Colossians 3 to put to death earthly things and to put on Christ. Put about, to put away those things which are ungodly and to put on those things like compassion and gentleness and kindness and goodness and so forth that, that reflect Christ. Even in the midst of, you know, the difficulties of that at times to overcome your own sinfulness, your own pride, your own selfishness and to be compassionate, to be merciful, to be kind, to be loving, to, to be that. And, and, and you know, the, the, that, that's a means of grace to you that you know that. And that God is enabling you, even though it might be a struggle and even though it might be difficult, you see. And, and so that's this sense of the, of the grace of God. Now, as we mentioned last Sunday, and I just want to just follow this theme again today because I think it's so important to us, is that 
when we know the grace of God, you see, it's to, to spur in us gratefulness, right? If you've been giving that, given that which you don't deserve and given that which you don't, don't deserve but is utterly and eternally necessary, if you don't get it, your eternal existence will be misery. And yet you've been given it so that it isn't misery but the opposite, that it's joy. That should make us grateful. As we said, gratefulness is the result of comparing what we have with what we deserve to have. We can get that in our minds and really realize what we've been given, then gratefulness comes. But it, it doesn't stop there. You see, the motive for these good works isn't just simply that we're grateful. It's not like, well, you've done this for me, therefore I must do this for you. You went to all that trouble for me, therefore I will. It's not out of guilt that we live to please the Lord. It's out of love. This gratefulness is to spur in us love for him. To be devoted to him. Um, There's a passage in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5. We spoke of it when we were working our way through 2 Corinthians a while ago, but if you can turn to that quickly, if you have a Bible or some sort of device to do that. Um, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Now that isn't the love that Paul has for Christ, but rather the love, first and foremost, that Christ has for him, as we'll see. He says, in recognizing the love of Christ for me, for the love of Christ compels me, is another translation, controls me. Because we've concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, when I get a grasp of the love of Christ for me, it compels me. It compels me to live, not for myself, but for him. Yes, out of gratitude, but really ultimately out of love. Because when I grasp his love for me, then it produces in me love for him. When I really get it. That's what, we could say it this way, we're working towards. That's what what we desire. That's, That's what we're aiming at when we think of Christ. To know his love so that we might be grateful so that we might love him. Because then in the love for him, then we realize I'm not to live no longer for myself, but to live for this one who died, not only who died, but was raised. Because you see, raised that I might know with him this newness of life. Does that make sense? William Law, uh, 18th century um, pastor, preacher, person, writer, wrote a book with a rather ponderous title. The title is A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Right? A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. It's one of the books, if you have it on your shelf, you, you don't pick up casually. You, know, you pick up that book, you read the title, and you go, oh, I need to be in the mood to read this. You know, this is a, this is a book you know is going to shake your shoes a bit. He writes this. He says, The Devout Man... Or woman, the devout man, therefore, 
is one who lives no longer to his own will or to the way and spirit of the world, but solely to the will of God. He considers God in everything and he serves God in everything. He makes every aspect of his common life into an aspect of piety or godliness by doing everything in the name of God and to his glory. I mean, that's the sense of living a God-centered, a God-conscious life, this recognition that God is God. And by his spirit, he is here with me. And that he has so loved me and worked in me that my best life really is to love him and to follow after him. And he's given me every reason to do that. And he's worked every reason in me that I would really love him. And so every circumstance, every decision, every the way he, every way he evaluates life, even the most mundane aspects of life, he thinks about and lives in the context of who God is. You get the sense that William Law would agree that, that you must simply pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? In every circumstance, in every situation, Father, Glorify yourself. May your name be shown to be great, to be holy. And, and why? Well, because I love you. Because you deserve to be great and holy. There's, there's nothing else that would please me more because of who you are and what you've done. In fact, that was the, the motives that we see in Titus chapter 2 for, for living this holy life. We realize that... Uh, um, uh, the younger women are to live uh, self-controlled lives that the word of God may not be reviled, right? That God would be honored. Uh, that uh, uh, Titus was to live his life in so such a way so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And bond servants were to live a life so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, they may show the gospel to be beautiful and great. And so, so that's this sense of living this God-centered life. How do we get there? Well, again, Second Corinthians, if I might, in chapter 3 and verse 18. How is it that this love of God, love of Christ for us, grows uh, how, to such a degree that we love him so that we no longer live for ourselves but for him? Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, the more we behold Him, right? And that doesn't mean just look at Him casually. It means to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, to behold Him. To think of him, to meditate upon him, to, to, to see and to understand what he's done for us, to, to behold him. He says in the midst of that, that's transforming us from one degree of glory, if you will, to another. That we're growing, you see. We're growing in such a way that we no longer live for ourselves, but to please him. And that no longer living for ourselves, but to please him, brings us joy. It isn't a duty, but it it brings us joy to do that. We can think of no other life that, that could be better than that. And, and how do we get there? We get there by gazing, no, by beholding him, by considering him, by looking upon the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 
5 in chapter 4, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but uh, Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You want to see the glory of God, you look at Christ. And so, may I suggest that this passage, especially as it begins in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, is such a way to look at Christ, to see the glory of Christ. So all I want to do this morning is walk us through that, and and my time is short, but to, to, to walk us through this, to see Jesus as clearly as we can. It's likely... That this passage, uh, beginning at least with verse 4 through verse 8, perhaps even with verse 3, was an early Christian hymn or creed. We use it as such. There are times when the profession of faith for a Sunday morning isn't the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but this passage, we've used it before because it so lays out the gospel for us. Notice the point, it says, He saved us, verse 5. He saved us. He rescued us. And when we think about just that very point, just that expression, if you can just take that to bed with you tonight. He saved us. And allow your mind just to flow around it before you go to sleep. Wake up with that. He saved us. What does that mean? It means he rescued us. It means we were lost and we were found. It means that, that we were in a place that, was, that would destroy us. That would kill us. And that for all eternity. And we didn't even know it was a bad place. We didn't even know we needed rescued. There we were. And he rescued us. The scripture says. Uh, he saved us. Uh, if I could go back to Second Corinthians chapter 4. We were morally blind. And spiritually blind. Verse uh, 3 of Second Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, that's it. We're blinded. We were really blinded. We couldn't see any of, of, of this. And we were on our way to destruction. And the way the Bible describes destruction, a bit metaphorically at times, with expressions like there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, we wonder, oh my. We're a place where the fire is never quenched and the worm does not die. You think about what that means to live in the midst of a fire that is never quenched and a worm that does not die. That place that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the wrath of God is, 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 is expressed there continually. And we see that and we realize we've been rescued from that uh, by, by Jesus. I haven't time, but this week sometime in your reading, read through Revelation chapter 18 and you'll see the futility of life apart from God. The sadness of the merchants who realize that everything they've worked for is gone. The sadness of the, of the kings who realize that the nations they ruled are all gone. It's all been for naught. It's all been for nothing. 
the futility of everything that I have my hope in is gone if it's not in Christ. And we've been saved by that. And we've been saved by that, you see, by his grace. Notice verse 3 describes our lives. For we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This sense of foolishness, we've said before, and you know this, that the psalmist writes, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. To live foolishly, to live as if there's no God at all. And so to put all your eggs in your own basket, if you will, to trust yourself and the wisdom of yourself and to act as if there's no God and to, to idolize, to worship that which isn't God. The, the scriptures tells us in Romans 1, the foolishness of, of that, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We have it, but we won't acknowledge it. We live foolish. We live as if there is no God. In verse 20 in Romans 1 says, For the, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For all they knew God, they didn't honor him as God had given him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and foolishness, foolish in their hearts. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Begin to worship the creation and not the creator. It's like sitting there marveling at the light bulb and missing the fact that there's something called the sun up there. And we think we're great for the light bulb, but we, how did that get there? And we should be worshiping the one who got the sun there. And we're simply not. We're worshiping that which we make. We're worshiping that which we possess. We're worshiping. How foolish is that? And the foolishness, again, is such that we suppress the truth in such a way that we're blinded by it. A silly example, but everybody, you have to do this as part of your Advent tradition, I trust, is to watch the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, We watched it the other night. Did we get through the end or did we fall asleep? We fell asleep. Huh? Got the end of it to go. Uh, anyway, we watched it at least through the part. I don't know if you know this part, but there's a part where George, who's the main character, and Mary, who becomes his wife, they're at this party. It's our high school graduation party, and he's he's older. And 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 what they nobody realizes is that the floor, the dance floor they're on, uh, underneath it is a swimming pool. And so there's a dance contest, and they're dancing away, and. Uh, George and Mary are, are dancing, and, and there, it's a contest. And, and uh, one of the guys, actually Alfalfa, but you've got to go way back for that one. But one of the actors, one of the guys, uh, is upset, so he has the key, and he opens up the floor while they're dancing. And George and Mary don't know that they're at risk. And they, they're dancing foolishly. Uh, and in, in, in fact, they, they don't know that they're just on the edge of falling into this swimming pool as it's opening up and the dance floor is getting smaller and smaller. But they're so oblivious to it all that they think that people are cheering them and that they're actually dancing really well and are probably going to win. That's the foolishness that we live when we live as if there is no God. We're dancing away and we think we're being applauded. We're dancing away and we think we're being successful. We're dancing away and we don't know that, that at any moment we're going to fall in. 
they, they fell in, by the way. But, but, but you get the point of that's the kind of foolishness. If you only think about that in your, in your mind. And you've been saved from that. Been saved from that. Rescued from that. God came and grabbed you and pulled you away. And maybe in the beginning phases of that pulling, you were saying, what are you doing? I like it here. He said, no, 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 no. And he saved you, you see, rescued you. And we could go on, I haven't time, but we could go on for all of these that we were disobedient to him, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, slaves. That is, it's kind of a passive sense that we're being led by our passions, which are sinful. Jeremiah says, you can't even trust your own heart. It will deceive you. Don't trust your passions. It will deceive you. We're saved from all of that. And we're saved by his grace. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This washing, probably a reference in some sense to baptism, the sense that, that we... that. We're cleansed, right? He washed us clean. We were unclean. He washed us clean and gave us new life, regenerated us and renewed us. Uh, um, the Holy Spirit did. And this re- regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. And again, keep in mind that when Jesus speaks of being born again, he speaks of something in John chapter 3 that happens to us. We don't do it. There was a book a number of years ago by a very wonderful preacher of the gospel with a really bad title. The book wasn't as bad as the title, but it wasn't that good a book, so don't read it. But it was called How to Be Born Again. In other words, what to do in order to be born again. And, and that's, bless his heart, it's just a preposterous idea. No one can conceive themselves. It's inconceivable, right? That we're sitting here, all of us, having been born, but not of our own doing. So I always say that you should give presents to your parents on your birthday. It shouldn't be the other way around because they're the ones responsible, not you in the midst of this. And that's the same way spiritually. That's, that's the grace of it. That's the amazing grace of it. Washing and renewal, uh, washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, that is abundantly. There's no, we don't have to worry, we don't have enough of the Holy Spirit. Poured out on us richly uh, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, because of Jesus, because of the work that he did. His spirit has come to apply all that Jesus got in his death and resurrection so that we would know it and be united to it. And so the Holy Spirit does that. So that now, being justified by his grace, that is, God declares us righteous. And you can say, how can he do that? That's against the Bible. Even the Bible says you shouldn't acquit the guilty. Even the Bible says you can't declare the wicked righteous. How does God do that and retain his righteousness? We know he does it because... Jesus represents us and he lays our guilt upon him so that he can honestly declare us righteous in Jesus. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus. That's why Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. It comes to us. But think about that. You know your life. And yet when God sees you, 
He says, you are righteous in my sight, in Jesus. What a gift, his grace. And now this makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs meaning we belong to his family. Heirs meaning he is our father. Heirs meaning we've been adopted by him into his family. And all that is belongs to Jesus belongs to us. And we have special privileges, therefore, with God because he is our father, because we are heirs and we can go to him and we can pray and we can seek his word and we can know that he's with us because he is our father. One of the rules always in my life uh, for everybody who controls telephones for me is that my kids have first access. My wife and my kids, they, they have my family, if they call, doesn't matter what. Tell me they've called. They have first access. Always, that's a sense of family, right? My kids are heirs to the Vogler fortune. Uh, they're not too thrilled with that. But, you know, but they really are. They're the, they, get first, they get dibs on everything, right? Because it's a family thing. And that's the sense of it, you see. And the point is, then this all rounds out. God says, so I've taken you from this one of disobedience and misery, really, to one who now can be zealous to do that, which is good. What a blessing to not be stuck in the muck of selfishness and pride and anger and malice and all of that. He said, no, no, I've freed you from that. Now, I walk you through that, A, because it's in the Bible, and so we walk it through. But, but B, again, for this purpose of just rehearsing again for us during this Advent season, the whole of it. Right there, we, we saw our need. We saw the source of our salvation. We saw the means by which we are saved, the grace of God through the work of Jesus. We see what it does in us to wash us and renew us. And we see then how it frees us, not only from sin's penalty, but the enslavement to it, so that now we can do that which is good as evidence of the fact that we really do belong to him. Never stop looking at that. Never grow beyond that. And this meal tells that once again to us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget this. Because you see, as you behold the wondrous mystery, as we say, as we behold Jesus, then we grow into his likeness. From one degree of glory to another. And our gratefulness grows because we see what he's done for us and our love for him grows. 
so that then we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died, not only died, but was raised. And he was raised in newness of life and us in him so that we can live. Behold. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that we would be able to see it. We'd be able to see it. That the Lord Jesus gave himself for us. Please, I pray, take this bread, take this juice, set it apart in such a way that we'll know this wondrous mystery. And that we'll know we're in the very presence of this one who gave himself for us. That we might live. That we might live in him. So please do that. In Jesus' name.